When you hear the word nuclear bomb, what do you think? My guess is that for many of you, you get a sudden vision of all the atomic explosions, some real, many fake, you've seen on screen over the years. From archival footage of mushroom clouds to scenes of Bruce Willis and Slim Pickens riding to their doom, the concept of a nuclear weapon is pretty clear. You can picture it. What about a dirty bomb, though? Nobody in a Hollywood movie ever started or averted the apocalypse with one of those, though Bond villain Arik Goldfinger plotted in 1964 to use a radiological dispersion device to irradiate America's gold supply at Fort Knox. That was Goldfinger. Now, a recent conspiracy theory promoted by the Kremlin about Ukraine's supposed plans involving a dirty bomb has demonstrated that the general public struggles to understand what exactly these weapons are. So what are dirty bombs? And what would happen if a radiological weapon were used in Ukraine? Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's show, you'll hear from three experts about the potential use of radiological weapons in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'd hoped to release this episode last week, but as you might be able to hear from the sound of my voice, I got sick. I'm still getting over it, so we're only rolling out now. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English-language newsletter and podcast. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. Okay, let's get to today's show. On October 23rd, following a report in Russia's state news, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu started calling his counterparts in France, Turkey, the UK, and the United States, warning that Moscow has collected intelligence suggesting that the Ukrainian government is preparing a provocation involving the use of a dirty bomb. A day later, Russia's foreign ministry claimed that Kiev plans to camouflage an explosion of the radioactive substances derived from the spent nuclear fuel storages of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant as the effects of a low-power Russian nuclear warhead that contains highly enriched uranium in its charge, supposedly framing Moscow for using tactical nukes. At Kiev's own request, the United Nations nuclear watchdog has already begun inspections to investigate Russia's claims, but the Kremlin has pressed on undeterred. On October 27th, Vladimir Putin said again that the Ukrainian government is preparing an incident with a so-called dirty bomb, and that it will then claim that Russia attacked with a nuclear weapon. Dr. Andrei Bakalitsky is a senior researcher in the Weapons of Mass Destruction and Other Strategic Weapons Program at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. He agreed to speak to the Naked Pravda in his personal capacity as an expert on nukes. I asked him if he thinks Moscow's new rhetoric about dirty bombs constitutes something new in the war in Ukraine. I think it's consistent with what we've seen before. Uh, for example, Russian allegations of American biological laboratories in Ukraine has been all over the talking points of all the Russian decision makers, including President Putin. So if you have something you can point to saying that 
uh, your opponents are bad, you would definitely use it. So, do you think that these? I know you've said you've said elsewhere that um, you know you compare these allegations of, of a dirty bomb to the previous claims that the U.S. was was researching bioweapons in Ukraine. Do you view this as identical conspiracy theories that are? I mean, is your understanding that the Russian authorities know these are bogus and they're simply floating these on orders? Is it just like entirely PR or do you think that there's like a genuine suspicion of these things? So uh, I'm a political scientist. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> right. I cannot tell you what exactly happens in the mind of uh, those people. What I can say, and it's not only bioweapons, this is not the first, second, third or the fourth time during this war that Russian officials have been claiming that they're going to be some kind of false flag operations. In April, yeah. the same General Kirillo was talking about possible WMD use uh, in Ukraine. In June, Russian MOD was saying there'll be chemical provocation in Odessa. In July, Russia went to PCW, its permanent representative there, that there are going to be provocations, chemical provocations to Donetsk, Nikolai, and Kharkiv. Mm. Nothing of this happened. So from you know what we have seen previously, we can say that there is no correlation between Russia saying that it's going to be a, a provocation and something actually happening. Or, well, there is a correlation. It's like a reverse correlation. Nothing has been happening till now. This is, this is the facts we can operate with. Right. If this time will be any different, I cannot tell you, obviously, but you know, this, this is my current assumption. Okay. Now, I, I believe this was the case with Kirillov's presentation and also with previous bioweapons allegations is that you would get these these like slideshows essentially with what looks like an enormous amount of detail. Have you had a chance to look at any of this, whether it's on the bioweapons or the dirty bombs? And is it gibberish or is it like a reasonable presentation? So uh, I'm not a bio-expert. There <laughs> right. are other colleagues who do these things. I went through the nuclear mm -hmm. presentations from what I understand, there is a bigger one, which may have been sent to like a closed one, which had been sent to security council. I haven't said that. Kirillov's uh, allegations and the supporting evidence he, he was giving, it's not that it's like made up. Uh, yeah. he's, he's making the point that, well, Ukraine has uh, X and Y facilities. And then there is uh, information about those facilities. This is true. Ukraine does have facilities and, you know, it's. Information uh, used is kind of, you know, more or less true for, but, you know, sometimes it, it's weird because, for example, um, the images uh, which are in this presentation, some, one of it is a BN 600 nuclear reactor, which is a Russian reactor, which has, you know, nothing to do with all this. So maybe people who are doing presentation are not very well versed in um, imaging, but I assume it's there because someone just misattributed, but anyhow. The problem with all this is that there is no evidence. It's just saying Ukraine uh, has this intent. And we know that there are two companies which have been tasked with producing dirty bomb. And that's it. Uh, and it's all just attributed to sources. Yeah. 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 Kirill doesn't even name the organizations. Uh, Ria Novosti, which, which broke the story before, does. But uh, it's like you have to believe us. Uh, that, yeah. That's pretty much it. And are the, the two facilities that Ria Novosti named... Is there, yeah, it's, is it, yeah, Eastern Mining and Enrichment Plant and yeah. Institute for Nuclear Research of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences. So, Institute for Nuclear Research of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences, 
could be a organization you would think could do something to create some kind of weapon devices, maybe. But Eastern mining in a recent plant, uh, it's uh, just, you know, the people are extracting ore from under the ground and then using acids to get, uh, you know, uranium, uh, natural uranium out of ore. Mm-hmm. So they are not greatest specialists in the world on uh, creating anything. And natural uranium is not reactive. You cannot make any dirty bombs on any other kind of bombs out of it. Mm-hmm. So if I were tasking some organizations to create dirty bomb, Eastern mining enrichment plant would be the last on my list because those people obviously know nothing about it. I see. Okay. And I know that the Lieutenant General, he also used the terms dirty bomb and nuclear weapon interchangeably, it seemed. Whereas I, you've pointed out, I know that the, these are not the same things. Oh, yeah. The, you, they're like worlds apart. So could you explain for listeners very briefly? I know it's a complicated yeah. subject, but just what is the difference? And also, what's the significance of this high-ranking military official talking about them like they're the same? So the difference is very clear. You don't have to be a a scientist to understand it. Nuclear weapon is uh, when you use fissile material, uranium and plutonium, uh, which um, has capability to start chain reaction. A lot of energy is released. That's the, the explosion. There is also light. There is also huge amounts of radiation emitted, huge destructive power. That's nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So dirty bomb is basically you take ordinary explosives and you add some radiological substances to them and you explode it. So it's just throwing radiological things out through conventional explosives. There is no huge blast. There is no other factors which nuclear weapons have. So it's like, it could be useful for terrorists because, you know, if you add something radiological to your terrorist attack, it sounds better. People get more scared, but in terms of destructive power, it's, it's it's nothing you cannot uh, really compare it to nuclear weapons in any way. So does that mean that, I mean, this is maybe, this is, these are some stupid questions I have now, but like, is the danger then, is the main danger of a nuclear weapon, the, like the concussive force of the explosion and not the radiation? Cause I always assumed it was like, oh, the it blows up what it blows up, but then it just irradiates, you know, an entire country or something. And for a thousand, ten thousand years, no one can live there. Well, it depends. Uh, you know, here at our uh, UN office in Geneva, there are second generation trees from Hiroshima. You know, they, they are doing fine in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Are nice cities in Japan you can visit. There is there is no traces left. Yes, the main thing which nuclear weapon does is uh, high explosive potential because basically there is no limit. Once you can transform, you, you get hydrogen, you can transform a mass into energy almost directly. You can create bomb of pretty any size and uh, explosive size in a very small container in, in a small space. Uh, yes, there is radiation. Yes, there is electromagnetic um, impulses. But yeah, the main problem, the main destructive force is still the, the explosion. So I guess, is that one of the big differences then between a nuclear explosion and a nuclear meltdown is that the meltdowns the radiation is is the issue and there's not i mean obviously there's not even an explosion at all i guess but yeah. is the radiation worse in a meltdown than it is in a nuclear explosion no it, it, it is still smaller but then actually so the idea of dispersing basically right those uh, radiological materials so you would want them to go as broad and as high as possible 
Uh, and even then it depends on what kind of material you, you get in, because if it's the alpha particles, alpha decay, it, it's not much harm, uh, alpha particles cannot penetrate your skin. But then of course, if you create some kind of cloud of small droplets, uh, with alpha particles, if you inhale them, then they are very much uh, deadly from inside. But at this point, you're starting going in the direction of chemical weapons almost. Because like, if it's inside you, it's much easier to put, you know, mustard mm -hmm. gas or whatever inside you and you have chemical weapons. From that point of view, radiological weapons, dirty bomb, uh, never, never made much sense. That's one of the reasons why no one ever really used them or operationalized them. I was talking to some of the officials who were dealing with those things in, in U.S. government in their time in the government, now they retired. And what I've heard that till some point around, I think, I think 9-11, mm -hmm. people were not allowed to speak about those kind of things. You wouldn't even go into the media and talk about dirty bomb because uh, they thought it would be a huge hint to the terrorists because it's basically simple. You get explosive, you get any kind of radiological material which you can get from the hospital, you can uh, get from kind of some kind of uh, equipment mm -hmm. and you explode it and then there is panic. So you don't want that to happening. So I would say that much less attention was given to this okay. quite niche subject, frankly. And what about the fact that this, uh, this Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov, is that how you say his name? Yeah, yeah, Kirillov, yeah. He talked about, in his presentation, he talked about dirty bombs and nuclear weapons interchangeably. Is there any significance to that or do you think... I mean, it just seems bizarre because he's he does presume he presumably knows the difference. So it is bizarre, and uh, in in his speech, there is a line uh, where he also says that they have information about contacts between the Ukrainians and UK, where Ukraine is trying to get information to build nuclear weapons, like real nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And if that were the case, I would be much more worried if Ukraine were trying. If I were Russia, I would be much more worried if Ukraine were building nuclear weapons because man. If those people you're fighting the war with get nuclear weapons, they can actually nuke you. Right. So that's like a huge problem for you. Right. So I, I'm surprised Russia is not trying to put this out because presumably that's, that's, you know, crazy situation. Uh, DPRK is under huge sanction because of this. Iran is, you know, under huge sanction pressure for it. Mm -hmm. If there is some information, I, I'm really surprised Russia is not going with that. So this whole statement is really... A lot of things happening at the same time. He's speaking about dirty bombs. He's speaking about nuclear weapons. He's speaking about, uh, you know, chemical weapons in Syria and how those are provocations. So uh, it seems like all the bad things they could say about Ukraine and its allies are basically in, in this uh, presentation. Dr. Nicole Grajewski is a Stanton Nuclear Security Postdoctoral Fellow with the Belfer Center's Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard's Kennedy School. She argues that Moscow's dirty bomb claims resemble the way Russia blamed incidents in Syria on the White Helmets volunteer organization, sometimes as a pretext, but mostly to displace the Assad regime's responsibility for various atrocities. I asked her to explain this comparison. Well... In Syria, you saw a lot of the times when Russia was either trying to deflect blame from Assad or trying to actually preempt any kind of criticism or, or preempt any kind of defense to criticism 
was creating this narrative that placed blame on the white helmets for either committing atrocities or for using chemical weapons. And that was really prominent in 2017 around uh, And you saw the Russians actually coming up with this narrative that the white helmets were engaged with chemical weapons and that they continued to be using it in Syria in order to divert attention from Assad. I think one of the differences between the Russian narrative on Syria and the Russian narrative on Ukraine is that the Russian narrative in Syria was more about protecting Assad and kind of its interests. You know, they use the words like liberation of territories whenever they're conducting military campaigns. But when it comes to Ukraine specifically, it seems like a lot of this Russian rhetoric is either signaling or trying to dissuade any kind of f- further action and is actually more about their own, I guess, status in the international community. Of course, there hasn't been many states that have bought into this narrative. Whereas with Syria, you wouldn't really see as much scrutiny over the Russian narrative, at least from states beyond the West. Why do you think that, like, what's the what's the reason for doing this if nobody's buying it? I mean, I know that you, you just said that, that in Syria, they face less less scrutiny, but it seems like the more they make these allegations of plots and so on, these kind of like, I don't know, whether it's like a weapon of mass destruction allegation or just like a war atrocity, the, 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 there's diminishing returns on these these uh, these claims? Like, well, why do we keep getting them? Well, I think that there's a hope at least some countries would buy into it, or at least some of its closer allies or partners would um, re-articulate this. And one of the things actually when it came to Syria and also with the Skripal incident was Russia working within certain countries within multilateral organizations in order to support their claims about chemical weapons or you know targeted assassinations with uh, chemical agents. So, I mean, today I actually saw um, Nord News, which is a Persian outlet that's affiliated with their National Security Council, coming up with the exact same rhetoric as the Russians. So there are some countries that buy into this, and it does give Russia some type or semblance of a defense when it is in the international, when it's in international forums. If a dirty bomb is detonated in Ukraine, and if the West perceives that as the work of Russia, even if Russia doesn't acknowledge it. Do you think that adds credibility to to nuclear saber rattling that is done by Moscow, or does it diminish it? Does the West say, "Oh, they're serious," or do they say, "Oh, they're they're not serious. They're just toying around with these lesser weapons." I think that in general, the Biden administration in the West has taken a lot of these nuclear this nuclear rhetoric quite seriously. But if there was the use of a dirty bomb and Russian strategic forces seem to be moving in that direction towards, you know, some kind of nuclear use. I, I definitely think that would heighten concern. Yeah. Um, but I, one of the other things that is sometimes like overlooked in this is that Russia is also one of the, the depository states of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. And parts of the Budapest memorandum is that, you know, Ukraine would be free from any kind of aggression when it comes to this. And so, and Russia is one of the, guarantors of that treaty as well. So Russia's violating many obligations that was established in its founding, but also undermines its credibility. I mean, Rosatom is a very, it's a large nuclear supplier. It's one of the largest suppliers of nuclear fuel in the world. Russia has power plants uh, throughout the world. And so whether or not the economic downfalls on that would be affected as well, I think is probably in Russian calculations. What about if Ukraine were to seek nuclear weapons in the future as a result of having been invaded and, as you mentioned, the Budapest Memorandum not having been much used to it. How many steps are required to get there and how how plausible is it? It would be quite difficult. There's two real routes to getting a nuclear bomb or nuclear weapon. There's the plutonium route, which is through reprocessing and reactors. And then there's 
the uranium route, which is through enrichment. And um, the uranium route is fine for like gun bombs or gun munitions. And so it's a little bit easier to go the uranium route, but you need a lot of, you need a large amount of uranium in order for it to be actually like effective. The technical side of it aside, Ukraine would be under a lot of scrutiny from the international community if they did seek this route. And there's IAEA safeguards. Um, so, you know, International Atomic Energy Agency, it's a UN watchdog on nuclear issues. They have a mandate to you know, maintain the safeguards regime and, and, and ensure verification and monitoring of nuclear sites. And so in some ways, it, it is a little bit more difficult to acquire any kind of fissile material that could be used for a nuclear bomb. Of course, Ukraine does have power plants nuclear power plants. But we've seen this happen with Iran and North Korea. So it's feasible, but it would probably make Ukraine a pariah state. And I don't think that that's, you know, if they want to join NATO, they technically would be under the US or the NATO nuclear umbrella as well. But if, I mean, like one of the, the plays would seemingly be that if, if NATO continues to drag its feet with formal membership, although obviously in terms of on the ground, I mean, like it's a lot of cooperation already. But if formal membership proved elusive, do you think the international response would still be to treat Ukraine as a prize state if it pursued nuclear weapons? I mean, I know this is very hypothetical, but it's it's also, I suppose, relevant because if, if only because Russia continues to accuse the authorities in Ukraine of seeking a nuclear weapon. I mean, they paint it as a kind of like a surreptitious effort, which, as you've pointed out, would be difficult to conceal given all the oversight. But if years from now, the open public conclusion of the Ukrainian authorities was we need nuclear weapons to defend ourselves against our aggressive neighbor. Not totally, you know, unreasonable, I suppose, but again, like potentially very destabilizing. Is there an indication of, would the West, you know, you think the West would treat Ukraine then as a dangerous pariah? Well, nonproliferation has been one of the very few consistent things in U.S. foreign policy and um, preventing states from acquiring nuclear weapons is part of that. I think it would be a rare instance where the United States and Russia could cooperate on something. <laughs> uh-huh. Um but there are benefits of being under the NATO nuclear umbrella. I think perhaps that's what was Russia was fearing in the first place. But Ukraine would also be subject to potentially international sanctions, um, you know, kind of, and that and that would affect any kind of rebuilding of the territory, rebuilding of the infrastructure, post-war situation. Mm. So I, I think that it would be risky. It could cause Russia to react more quickly when they see this and kind of pursue counter-proliferation policies, so preventing Ukraine from actually getting to the stage where they have enough weapons-grade uranium for a weapon. But yeah, it's an interesting hypothetical. I think it would be a strange turn of events if that did happen. I noticed that in a speech to, I think, the Israeli people and the Israeli authorities, Zelensky recently suggested that Russia is actually helping, in exchange for all these cheap drones, instead of giving money, Russia is, is according to Zelensky, very likely assisting Ukraine with its acquisition of nuclear weapons or development of nuclear weapons. Do you do you think that that is likely the, the exchange that we're seeing right now? I don't think that's the case. I mean, Russia has a kind of vested interest in Iran not acquiring a nuclear weapon because it gives it a bit of leverage when it comes to the West. As long as Iran doesn't really have a nuclear weapon, as long as Russia is involved in the Iranian domestic nuclear energy sector, Russia has some type of bargaining chip in, in these affairs. So Russia, Russia doesn't want Iran to have nukes and the United States doesn't want Ukraine to have nukes. <laughs> yeah, I guess neither Russia nor the, the United States and Russia kind of share one common yeah. 
principle, which is, you know, they don't really want more states to have nuclear weapons, which is. Okay. If only we could tie all of world peace issues to that one. (laughs) But yes, I mean, Russia has uh, a lot of involvement in the Iranian nuclear sector. I think part of it, there was speculation about the Su-35 and those contracts potentially going to Iran. Okay. But I actually would look at it in the broader context of Russia-Iran relations and kind of what we're seeing in Syria. And perhaps there's some kind of bargain or quid pro quo when it comes to Iran's involvement in Syria. There was disputes over energy contracts and kind of control mm. of territory. So that seems a little bit more likely than Russia assisting Tehran receiving a nuclear weapon, which, you know, they worked quite hard in, in, in very difficult talks on ensuring that Iran didn't acquire a nuclear weapon. The dirty bomb allegations against Ukraine, which which now you know now Putin is also mentioning publicly, they suggest that there are more options, I guess, for Russia's actions in Ukraine than simply launching an all-out nuclear strike. That they can toy with this notion of radiological dispersion devices, which are obviously not nuclear weapons, but they they still they prey on on fear of radiation, which is you know very powerful in terms of public messaging and so on. In the history of the development of nuclear weapons and weapons using radiological, I don't know, using radiation. Is there a history of deliberately developing these weapons? Or is this something that simply people have thought, okay, terrorists could use these? Or is there is there like a state development program in terms of specifically dispersing radiation as opposed to nuclear blasts? That is a great question. And there is this very interesting, but basically unknown history of the rise and demise of state-level radiological weapons programs that we've been really interested in at at CNS. That's Sarah Bidgood, the director of the Eurasia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. She agreed to speak to me from sunny Monterey, California, where her research focuses on U.S.-Soviet and U.S.-Russia nonproliferation cooperation, as well as the international nonproliferation regime more broadly. After 9-11, especially, you know, most people tended to kind of associate and think about radiological weapons really as the purview of non-state actors. But there is this history of state-level pursuit that we've been researching and publishing on for the last several years. So we had a piece that came out in International Security in 2020 that told the story of essentially the, the rise and demise of the U.S. and Soviet pursuits of radiological weapons and we now have a full-length, you know, book-length manuscript that traces the pursuit of other countries' um, interest in radiological weapons that's under review with a university press. So we're hoping that that's going to be under contract soon. And we can find a couple of interesting things when we trace that history. You know, the first that I think is really important to point out in this context is that, to our knowledge, no state has ever actually deployed radiological weapons, even though there are several or you know, perhaps more than that who are at least interested in and in some cases even got to the point of testing. The U.S. and the USSR are two examples. They both pursued radiological weapons starting somewhere in the mid-1940s, going up through the mid-1950s. Um, and part of the reason why those programs never moved beyond the stage of testing to actual deployment is that it turns out it's actually really technically quite difficult to develop radiological weapons or to make them effective in kind of dispersing radioactivity. And at the same time, you know, in conjunction with that, at least in in nuclear weapons states like the United States and at the time the Soviet Union, radiological weapons didn't offer a lot of kind of battlefield advantages when you compared them with things like thermonuclear weapons or chemical weapons. So again, at least in, in the case of the U.S. and the Soviet Union, you have this kind of substitution effect where 
you know, once thermonuclear weapons are on the scene, you really see interest and, and bureaucratic support for the pursuit of radiological weapons drop off. You said they're too difficult, but it's also, I, I was under the impression that they're quite easy to make. It's easy to make a dirty bomb. So why is it, how is it too difficult, but also too easy? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there is a misperception that they're very simple to make. And you sometimes hear them referred to as things like, you know, sort of the poor man's nuclear bomb or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that represents a real misconception about how difficult it is to actually disperse, you know, kind of the, the radioactive material that is in a radiological weapon. As it turns out, and as we know from having, again, traced this history of, you know, the U.S. and Soviet pursuit of these weapons, um, it's actually very hard to get that material to sort of spread out in the ways that you would want it to, to have its, you know, desired effect. It's also, you know, challenging to do the development of these weapons because it involves a lot of, you know, dangerous stuff that you're working with that put personnel in danger. It ends up using a lot of material like airplanes and, you know, for example, if you're testing bombs that will be dropped from an airplane where those things are getting contaminated. And so you're sort of using up your other material in service of developing these radiological weapons that at the end of the day turn out not to offer a huge battlefield advantage when compared with, with other weapons of mass destruction that a country might have in its arsenal. The American public or the global public is familiar with nuclear weapons, probably mostly from like Hollywood movies and seeing a thousand nuclear explosions, you know, fictionalized and, you know, maybe archival footage as well, tests and so on. In terms of dirty bombs, are there any like popular culture kind of like demonstrations that you can think of? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yes, I'm actually so glad that you asked that because... <laughs> Probably, uh, you know, I'm one of a few people for whom that would be a very interesting question. But there actually is this really interesting kind of popular culture discussion of radiological weapons that emerges almost at exactly the same time that they were being explored in a real military classified setting in the mid 1940s and 1950s in the U.S. and the USSR. So there's actually a short story by Robert Heinlein, one of the you know famous writers of science fiction in the United States, called solution unsatisfactory that came out in 1941, where he is telling this science fiction story about what he refers to as death dust in the story, this kind of radiological, radioactive dust that would be used as a, as a weapon of mass destruction. So there was this very interesting kind of interplay between what was happening in the popular science and popular fiction space and what was going on in the classified space and, you know, at least to my mind, I think there was kind of a socialization of the idea of radiological weapons through that telling in the science fiction sphere that may have, you know, even created some space for thinking about the use of radiological weapons in a more military or classified space. We don't have, you know, specific evidence to point to those precise links, but there is kind of a, an element in which they were being socialized. So I think that's a really interesting connection. And I'll say also, you know, since we're sort of talking about the USSR and Russia as well. They have their own, you know, science fiction examples of these kinds of weapons. So there's a story that I remember reading when I was doing my archival research for this paper I referenced previously, where we read that at one of the test sites where the Soviet Union was conducting tests of radiological warheads in the 1950s, they actually showed a film called Silver Dust that was supposed to sort of it was a science fiction film, but it was supposed to help the testers sort of understand what the purpose of their work was going to be. And so, again, you see this really interesting linkage between sort of a fictionalized science fiction -y description of what radiological weapons are and can do and you know, using that to inform what was actually happening in the military or the classified space. Very interesting. What about what about you hear about clean nukes and dirty nukes? 
and there's that conversation, and then we also have the the term "dirty bum." How do these how do these relate? Yeah, it's confusing because you know the term sort of "dirty bomb" is itself kind of a colloquial term that means radioactive dispersal devices and and radiological weapons where you don't really have a nuclear explosion at all. So you know that's pretty consistent. That's always been the way that the term "dirty bomb" has been used. But you're exactly right that there's this separate history of kind of clean versus dirty nuclear weapons. And I don't purport to be, you know, an expert on that. But in essence, you know, starting in the 1950s and 60s, at least, you know, among some factions in the United States, there was interest in developing so-called, you know, clean or super clean or immaculate nuclear weapons where the explosive yield would come mostly or entirely from fusion rather than fission. And the idea here was to reduce, you know, radiation exposure when compared with dirty nuclear weapons like thermonuclear weapons. But it turned out turned out to be very technologically difficult, basically out of reach. And so that idea never really went anywhere. But that's where I see the the kind of conflation of those terms. But again, you know, dirty bomb is referring specifically to something that that is not a nuclear explosion. It's these radiological dispersal devices. And then you have a separate discussion of clean and dirty nuclear weapons. Okay. All right. Are you able to comment at all about what kind of arms control is ongoing right now? Because a lot of the fears are the the diplomatic connections between Russia and the United States have deteriorated so much that people are wondering, are they still, are are we still cooperating at all with this? Or do we not know any longer, you know, where the nukes are pointed and and whether they're fired up and all this stuff? I mean, like, what's the state of arms control right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So as you know, there is one remaining bilateral arms control agreement in place between the United States and Russia, which is the New START Treaty. That was concluded in 2010, entered into force in 2011. It was set to expire in 2021. But one of the first things that President Biden did when he came into office was to agree with Vladimir Putin to extend that treaty for five years, which is the, the max that's allowed under the terms of that treaty. And so, you know, that doesn't cover everything. Of course, it's limits, as the name implies, the number of strategic offensive arms that that both parties can have. And so one of the big questions, of course, is what is going to happen after that treaty expires? Can another agreement be put into place that either, you know, extends those same limits that would further reduce the size of the strategic arsenals of both sides that would encompass other things like non-strategic weapons, issues that Russia is concerned about, like ballistic missile defense? And that remains an open question. In June of 2021, Biden and Putin did announce the establishment of this strategic stability dialogue that was meant to kind of lay the groundwork for the next phase of arms control and risk reduction measures. And they met three times, but that forum was suspended when Russia invaded Ukraine. And so one of the big questions now is kind of what is going to happen next with arms control? When will the two sides be able to come back to the negotiating table What will their negotiations look like in this very different international security environment? Something I think a lot about is how will the aftermath of, you know, the war, if if we assume that these negotiations will take place after the war ends, how will that emotionally shape what happens at the negotiating table? Will it make both sides less willing to show the kinds of flexibility that they would need to in order to reach an agreement? I think that's a very real prospect. So that's kind of where things are right now. We're sort of waiting to see when negotiations might start back up again. I'll just say, you know, in the meantime, we're talking here about bilateral arms control, but, you know, there are other agreements that the United States and and the Russian Federation are are still part of, even though the 
arms control architecture is is often it's often described as being very impoverished right now. Um, like test ban treaties. And exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So I'm thinking here about things like the non-proliferation treaty, which, you know, the United States and Russia as parties to that treaty do have this obligation to engage in good faith negotiations leading to effective measures designed to bring about the cessation of the arms race and, and things like that. Um, they're also, as you said, party to these test ban treaty agreements. Um, they have Cold War era risk reduction agreements in place. So these things are still there. It's just we don't know what the future is going to look like with respect to you know bilateral arms reductions, which is really the, the path that both states have been on for the last several decades. But since the February 24th invasion, there have no deals have been killed. No, nothing's been canceled. It's more just a kind of frozen state. And what was looking like it could get better has not yeah, that's true. I mean, the one thing that I would say that has changed a little bit, and this is not in any way the demise of the New START Treaty or anything like that, but the two sides are not conducting on-site inspections, which are part of the verification mechanism for that agreement. Now, they had put those on pause in 2020 because of the pandemic, but there was some hope that they would be able to start those back up again. And instead, what has happened is that in August of this year, so just a couple of months ago, Russia announced that it wasn't going to allow American inspectors to inspect the weapons on its territory because it wasn't able to conduct reciprocal inspections of U.S. weapons as a result of the you know, travel restrictions that have been placed on Russian planes flying into, into U.S. airspace. So that's not happening right now. That's not the only component of that verification regime. We need to you know, be sure to, to state that explicitly. It's one component mm -hmm. of that. Right. They're still doing things like data exchanges, which are really important. But there has been this ongoing and kind of exacerbated pause in in the uh, on-site inspections that are part of that regime. My last question was about the nuclear taboo. This is something that's that's cited not not infrequently in the commentary about the potential use of nuclear weapons. I know that, you know, as we've been discussing a nuclear bomb and a dirty bomb is not they're not the same thing. However, a lot of this has to do with perception and phobias and so on and if, if Russia is essentially perceived to have used radiological dispersion devices in an attack on Ukraine, that would presumably have some influence on the taboo, I guess. What's your, what's your sense of the potential kind of, I was going to say fallout, but let's just say repercussions of, of uh, using a dirty bomb in, in, in Ukraine like that, in terms of the nuclear taboo, in terms of, you know, kind of fears and phobias and whatnot. When I think about the way that the nuclear taboo was originally framed, it was clearly described by Nina Tannenwald as relating to the use of nuclear weapons and the taboo against the use of nuclear weapons. And what she meant by that, if you go back and look at the, the actual literature, is a taboo against dropping or launching nuclear weapons in all circumstances other than testing. So things that are, you know, we're not talking about deterrence, we're not talking about making threats, we're talking about the actual use of nuclear even a, So even testing in the, under this definition would not challenge the taboo. Yes, exactly. Under Nina Tannenwald's definition. That's right. It's yeah, about the use yeah. of nuclear weapons. Do you think, do you think uh, Western officials would see it that way today? If Putin were to, were to withdraw from the test ban treaty, test a nuke in what would be considered a demonstrative use of a nuclear weapon, would policymakers sit back and say, well, the taboo is still intact. That's good. I think the taboo is more about the willingness of policymakers to go there. So I don't I think we have to make a distinction between what would be a huge escalation and a red line versus the sort of self-inhibition that policymakers practice against the 
use of nuclear weapons, which is really what Nina Tannenwald was describing. She was talking about how are policymakers thinking about the use of nuclear weapons in ways that espouse a taboo. I don't think she was referring to situations where an adversary would do something that would be an escalation and policymakers thinking in the abstract about whether or not the nuclear taboo is still in effect, if that makes sense. But I do agree with you. I think you're making an excellent point, which is that the use of radiological weapons, irrespective of whether there's a nuclear taboo, would represent a major escalation in, in this conflict. It would potentially put a lot of pressure on policymakers in the West to you know, respond in some way. And I think it would really change the tenor of a conflict that has been horrible, but has been heretofore a conventional conflict. So no matter what we think about the status of the nuclear taboo and the extent to which it is intact, that would change the shape of the war as we see it now. And, and you know, we don't quite know what would happen after that. If there is a nuclear explosion in Ukraine, God forbid, but if there is, is that sort of thing traceable to the origin of wherever the, the material was refined? Like if Russia says, oh, they're going to frame us with, with, with one of their bombs or something, could inspectors go into the into the blast site or whatever and take a soil sample and say, "Hey, this this material was refined, you know, in in uh, I don't know wherever Russia does it." This would definitely be a problem because Russia had the theories that Ukraine will use a dirty bomb yeah. on its soil and then say it was a Russian uh, nuclear weapon. We didn't explode in full, and they uh, have to frame you know Russia for it. But dirty bomb, as we were, you know, trying to, to explain here, is very, very different. So mm. if you see a dirty bomb, it's in no way similar to a nuclear bomb, half-exploded nuclear bomb or whatever. Like with the things Ukraine has in the soil, even if you take the spent nuclear fuel, it's very different mm. uh, from what would happen if there was a real nuclear explosion. So anybody who has any understanding of the process will say, no, come on, this is a dirty bomb. This is not an attack against uh, Ukraine with Russian nuclear weapons. And then uh, you'll have to go into the very bizarre world where, for example, I don't know, UK can sell its nuclear weapons to Ukraine. So Ukraine can detonate in its territory and try to frame Russia. Okay. I I mean... But with that, so if that were to happen, would that nuclear material be traceable back to the UK somehow or would it or is that sort of thing not possible there's no finger yeah I don't think that that would be an easy an easy thing to do also because I said topic composition of nuclear weapons is uh, like we don't really know countries don't tell you (laughs) what your nuclear weapons are made of so that could be complicated to prove but then it involves like really really out the scenario which is really out there yeah Okay. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from nuclear weapons expert Dr. Andrei Baklitsky, Dr. Nicole Graevsky with the Belfer Center's Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard's Kennedy School, and Sarah Bidgood, the director of the Eurasia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll be discussing the impact of sanctions on Russian commercial aviation. See you then.